Part One, Chapter Twenty Three of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The arrival of the young Prince Andre and his wife at Luisia Gori, Bald Hills, Prince Nikolai Andreyevich Bolkonsky's estate, was daily expected. But this did not make any break at all in the strenuous routine according to which life in the old prince's mansion was regulated. Prince Nikolai Andreyevich, a former general-in-chief, popularly called Le Roi de Prusse, had been banished to his estates during the reign of the Emperor Paul, and had lived like a hermit there ever since with his daughter, the Princess Maria, and her hired companion, Mademoiselle Burine. Even after the death of Paul, although he was free to go wherever he pleased, he still continued to live exclusively in the country, saying that if anyone wanted him, it was only half a hundred verse from Moscow to Luisia Guri, while as far as he was concerned, he wanted nothing and nobody. He declared that there were only two sources of human vice, idleness and superstition, and only two virtues, activity and intelligence. He himself undertook his daughter's education, and in order to inculcate both these virtues, he had given her lessons up to the age of twenty in algebra and geometry, and had apportioned her life into an uninterrupted system of occupations. He himself was constantly engaged in writing his memoirs, or in solving problems in the higher mathematics, or in turning snuff-boxes on a lathe, or in working in his garden and superintending the erection of buildings which were always going up on his estate. As the chief condition of activity is order, therefore order in his scheme of life was carried to the last degree of minuteness. His appearance at meals invariably took place under the same circumstances, and at not only the same hour, but the same moment each day. The prince was sharp and scrupulously exacting with the people around him, from his daughter to the humblest menial, and therefore, while he was not cruel, he inspired an awe and deference such as it would have been difficult for even the cruelest man to exact. Although he was living in seclusion, and had now no influence in matters of state, every nachalnik of the government in which he lived considered it his duty to pay his respects to him, and, precisely the same as the architect or the gardener or the princess Maria, waited the designated hour for the princess's appearance in the lofty hall and each one of those waiting in this hall experienced the same feeling of awe and fear as soon as the massive door of his cabinet swung open, and the form of the little old man appeared, in his powdered wig, with his small, dry hands, and pendulous grey eyebrows, which sometimes when he frowned concealed the gleam of his keen and youthfully glittering eyes. On the morning of the day when the young couple were expected, Princess Maria, as usual, at the regular hour, came down into the hall to wish her father good morning, and with fear and trembling crossed herself and repeated an inward prayer. Each morning she came the same way, and each morning she prayed that their daily meeting might be propitious. The old servant in a powdered wig, who was sitting in the hall, got up quietly and addressed her in a respectful whisper. Beyond the door could be heard the monotonous hum of the lathe. The princess timidly opened the door, which moved easily and noiselessly on its hinges, and stood at the entrance. The prince was working at his lathe. He looked round, and then went on with his work. The great cabinet was full of things, apparently in constant use, a huge table whereon lay books and plans, 
the lofty bookcases with keys in the mirror-lined doors, a high reading-desk, a cabinet-maker's lathe, with various kinds of tools and shavings and chips scattered about. All this indicated a constant, varied, and regular activity. By the motion of his small foot, shod tartar fashion in a silver-embroidered boot, by the firm pressure of his sinewy, thin hand, it could be seen that the prince had still the tenacious and not easily impaired strength of a green old age. Having made a few more turns, he took his foot from the treadle of the lathe, wiped his chisel, put it in a leather pocket attached to the lathe, and going to the table called his daughter to him. He never wasted blessings on his children, and therefore, merely offering his bristly cheek, which had as not yet been shaven for the day, he said, with a severe and at the same time a keenly affectionate look, "'Are you well? Now then, sit down.' He took a copy-book of geometrical work written out in his own hand, and pushed his chair along with his foot. "'For to-morrow,' said he, briskly, turning to the page and marking the paragraphs with his stiff nail. The princess leaned over the table toward the notebook. "'Wait, a letter for you,' said the old man abruptly, taking an envelope addressed in a feminine hand from the pocket fastened to the table, and tossing it to her. The princess's face colored in blotches at the sight of the letter. She hastily picked it up and examined it intently. "'From your Heloise,' asked the prince, with a chilling smile that showed his teeth that were still sound, though yellow. "'Yes, from Julie,' said the princess, timidly glancing up and timidly smiling. "'I shall allow two more letters to pass, but I shall read the third, said the prince severely. "'I fear you pen much nonsense. I shall read the third. "'You may read this, mon père,' replied the princess, with a still deeper flush, and holding the letter toward him. "'The third. I said the third, rejoined the prince, laconically, pushing away the letter. "'Then,' leaning his elbow on the table, he laid the notebook with the geometrical designs before her. "'Well, young lady,' began the old man, bending over toward his daughter and laying one arm in the back of her chair, so that the young princess felt herself surrounded by that peculiar acrid odor of tobacco and old age which she had so long learned to associate with her father. "'Well, young lady, these triangles are equal, if you will observe the angle A, B, C.' The princess gazed in dismay at her father's glittering eyes so near to her. The red patches again overspread her face, and it was evident that she had not the slightest comprehension of what he said, and was so overcome with fear that it really prevented her from comprehending any of her father's instructions, no matter how clearly they were expressed. The teacher may have been at fault, or the pupil may have been, but each day the same thing recurred. The princess's eyes pained her, she could not see anything or hear anything. All that she felt was the consciousness of her stern father's withered face, the consciousness of his breath and peculiar order, and her single thought was to escape as soon as possible from the cabinet and solve the problem by herself in peace. The old man would lose all patience, noisily push back the chair in which he was sitting, and then draw it forward again. Then he would exert his self-control so as not to break out into a fury, but rarely succeeded and sometimes he would fling the notebook upon the floor. The princess made a mistake in her answer. "'Now how can you be so stupid?' stormed the prince, throwing aside the notebook and hastily turning away. Then he rose to his feet, walked up and down, laid his hand on her hair, and again sitting down, 
drew close to her and proceeded with his instructions no use princess no use said he as the young lady took the lesson book and closing it started to leave the room mathematics is a great thing my girl and i don't wish you to be like our stupid silly women by dint of perseverance one learns to like it he patted her on the cheek the dullness will vanish from your brain she started to go he detained her by a gesture and took down from the high table a new book with uncut leaves here your heloise has sent you something else some key to the mystery a religious work i don't interfere with anyone's belief i looked it over take it now be off be off he patted her on the shoulder and closed the door himself after she had gone out the young princess Maria returned to her chamber with the pensive, scared expression which rarely left her and which rendered her plain, sickly face still more unattractive. She sat down at her writing-table covered with miniature portraits and cluttered with notebooks and volumes. The princess was just as disorderly as her father was systematic. She threw down her book of problems and hastily broke the seal of the letter, which was from the most intimate friend of her childhood this was no other than the julie karagina who was at the rostofs on the day of the fete julie read as follows chérie excellente amie what a terrible and frightful thing is distance it is in vain that i tell myself that half of my existence and happiness is in you that in spite of the distance which lies between us our hearts are bound to each other by indissoluble ties mine rebels against my fate and notwithstanding all the pleasures and attractions that surround me i cannot overcome a certain lurking sadness which i have felt in the depths of my heart ever since our separation why are we not together as we were this past summer in your great cabinet on the blue sofa la canopée aux confidences why can i not now as i did three months ago draw fresh moral strength from your eyes so sweet so calm so penetrating the eyes which I loved so much, and which I imagine I see before me as I write. Having read to this point, the Princess Maria sighed and glanced at the pier-glass that stood over against her, reflecting her slight, homely form and thin face. Her eyes, which were generally melancholy, just now looked with a peculiarly helpless expression at her image in the glass. "'She is flattering me,' said the Princess to herself, turning away and continuing her reading of the letter." Julie, however, had not flattered her friend. In reality, the princess's eyes were large, deep, and luminous. Sometimes whole sheaves, as it were, of soft light seemed to gleam forth from them, and then they were so beautiful that they transformed her whole face, notwithstanding the plainness of her features, and gave her a charm that was more attractive than mere beauty. But the young princess had never seen the beautiful expression of her own eyes, the expression which they had at times when she was not thinking of herself. Like most people, her face assumed an affectedly unnatural and ill-favored expression as soon as she looked into the glass. She went on with the letter. All Moscow is talking of nothing but the war. One of my two brothers has already gone abroad. The other is with the guard, which is just about to set out for the frontier. Our beloved emperor has left Petersburg, and, according to what they say, is intending to expose his precious life to the perils of war. God grant that the Corsican monster, who is destroying the peace of Europe, may be laid low by the angel whom the Almighty, in his mercy, has sent to rule over us. Now, to speak of my brothers, 
This war has deprived me of one who is nearest and dearest to my heart. I mean the young Nikolai Rostov, who was so enthusiastic that he was unable to endure inactivity, and has left the university to join the army. A bien, ma chère Marie, I will confess to you, that, notwithstanding his extreme youth, his departure for the army is a great grief to me. The young man, I told you about him last summer, has so much nobility, so much of that genuine youthfulness, which we meet with so rarely in this age of ours, among our men of twenty. He has really so much candor and heart, he is so pure and poetic, that my acquaintance with him, slight as it has been, must be counted as one of the sweetest enjoyments of my poor heart, which has already suffered so keenly. Some day I will tell you of our parting and what passed between us. As yet, it is still too fresh in my memory. Ah, cher ami, how happy you are not to experience these joys and these pangs so keen. You are fortunate, because the latter are usually the keenest. I know very well that Count Nikolai is too young ever to be anything to me more than a friend, but this sweet friendship, these relations, so poetic and so pure, have become one of the necessities of my heart. But enough of this. The chief news of the day, which all Moscow is engaged in talking about, is the death of the old Count Buzakoy and his inheritance. Just imagine, the three princesses get very little, Prince Vasily nothing, and it is Monsieur Pierre who has inherited everything. He has, moreover, been declared legitimate, and is, therefore, Count Buzakoy, and the possessor of the finest fortune in Russia. It is claimed that Prince Vasily has played a very poor part in this whole business, and that he has gone back to Petersburg very much crestfallen. I confess I have very little understanding of this matter of the bequests and the will. All I know is, that since this young man, whom we knew under the name Monsieur Pierre, pure and simple, has become Count Bozokoy, and master of one of the greatest fortunes of Russia, I am greatly amused to notice the changed tone and behavior of mammas burdened with marriageable daughters, and even the young ladies themselves, toward this individual, who, parenthetically, has always seemed to me to be a poor specimen. As it has been the amusement of many people for the past few years to marry me off, and generally to men whom I do not even know. La chronique matrimoniale of Moscow now makes me out Countess Buzakova. You know perfectly well that I have no desire of acquiring that position. Apropos de mariage, do you know that quite recently la tante générale, Anna Mikhailovna, has confided to me, under the seal of strictest secrecy, a marriage project for you? This is neither more nor less than Prince Vasily's son, Anatole, whom it is proposed to bring to order by marrying him to a young lady of wealth and distinction, and you are the one upon whom the choice of the relatives has fallen. I know not how you will look upon the matter, but I felt that it was my duty to inform you. They say he is very handsome, and a great scapegrace. That is all that I have been able to find out about him. But a truce to gossip like this, I am at the end of my second sheet, and Mamma is calling me to go to dine at the Apraxkins, Read the mystic book which I send you, and which is all the rage with us. Although there are things in this book difficult for the feeble mind of man to fathom, it is an admirable work, the reading of which soothes and elevates the mind. Adieu. My respects to your father and my compliments to Mademoiselle Burine. I embrace you with all my heart. Julie. P.S. Tell me the news about your brother and his charming little wife. 
The princess sat thinking, a pensive smile playing over her lips. Her face, lighted up by her luminous eyes, was perfectly transfigured. Then, suddenly jumping up, she walked briskly across the room to her table. She got out some paper, and her hand began to fly rapidly over it. This was what she wrote in reply. Chérie excellente amie, your letter of the thirteenth caused me great delight. So, then, you still love me, my poetic Julie, and absence, of which you say such hard things, has not had its usual effect upon you. You complain of absence. What should I have to say if I dared complain, bereft as I am of all those who are dearest to me? Ah, if we had not religion to console us, life would be very sad. Why should you suspect me of looking stern, when you speak to me of your affection for this young man? In this respect I am lenient to all except myself. I appreciate these sentiments in others, and if I cannot approve of them, never having myself experienced them, I do not condemn them. It only seemed to me that Christian love, love for our neighbor, love for our enemies, is more meritorious and, therefore, sweeter and more beautiful than those sentiments inspired in a poetic and loving young girl like you by a young man's handsome eyes. The news of Count Buzakoy's death reached us in advance of your letter, and my father was very much moved by it. He says that he was the last representative but one of the Grand Segale, and that now it is his turn, but that he shall do his best to put it off as long as possible. God preserve us from such a terrible misfortune. I cannot agree with you in your judgment of Pierre, whom I knew as a boy. He always seemed to me to have an excellent heart, and that is the quality which I most value in people. As to his inheritance and the role played by Prince Vasily, it is very sad for both of them. Ah, dear friend, our divine Saviour's saying that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God is terribly true. I pity Prince Vasily, and I am still more sorry for Pierre. So young, and to be loaded down with this wealth, what temptations will he not have to undergo? If I were asked what I should desire most in this world, it would be to be poorer than the poorest of beggars. A thousand thanks, cher ami, for the work which you send me and which is so much the rage with you in Moscow. However, as you say that while there are many good things in it, there are others which the feeble mind of men cannot fathom, it seems to me quite idle to waste one's time in reading what is unintelligible, and which, therefore, can be productive of no good fruit. I have never been able to understand the passion which some people have for disturbing their minds by devoting themselves to mystical books that only arouse doubts, kindling their imaginations and giving them a love for exaggeration utterly contrary to Christian simplicity. Let us read the Apostles and the Gospels. Let us give up trying to penetrate the mysteries they contain, for how should we, miserable sinners that we are, presume to investigate the terrible secrets of providence while we carry with us this garment of flesh, which forms an impenetrable veil between us and the Eternal. Then let us confine ourselves to a study of the sublime principles which our divine Saviour has left for our guidance here below. Let us seek to conform to them and follow them, being persuaded that the less rein we give to our feeble human minds, the more pleasing it is to God, who repudiates all knowledge not proceeding from Him, that the less we seek to explore what it has seemed best to him to hide from our comprehension, the sooner he will grant us to discover it by his divine spirit. My father has not said anything to me of a suitor. 
he has merely told me of having received a letter and of expecting a visit from prince vasili as far as the project of marriage concerns me i will tell you chere excellent ami that in my opinion marriage is a divine institution to which it is necessary to conform however painful it might be to me if the almighty should ever impose upon me the duties of a wife and mother i shall endeavour to fill them as faithfully as i can without disturbing myself by inquiring into the nature of my feelings toward him whom he shall give me as a husband i have had a letter from my brother announcing his speedy arrival at luisia gori with his wife this will be a joy of short duration for he will leave us to take part in this unhappy war into which we are dragged god knows why and how not alone with you at the centre of business and society is the war the only topic of conversation but here amid the labours of the field and that calm of nature which the inhabitants of cities ordinarily imagine to be peculiar to the country the rumours of the war make themselves painfully heard and felt my father can talk of nothing else but marches and countermarches things of which i have no comprehension and the day before yesterday while taking my usual walk down the village street i witnessed a heart-rending scene it was a party of recruits enlisted on our estate and on their way to the army you ought to have seen the state in which were the mothers wives and children of the men who were off and to have heard their sobs you should think that humanity had forgotten the precepts of their divine saviour who taught love and the forgiveness of offences one would think that they imputed their greatest merit to the art of killing each other adieu cher bon ami may our divine saviour and his holy mother keep you in their holy and powerful keeping marie ah you are dispatching a courier princess i have already sent mine i have written to my poor mother said the smiling mademoiselle burine speaking rapidly and swallowing her r's and altogether bringing into the princess maria's concentrated and melancholy atmosphere what seemed like the breath of another world where reigned gaiety light-heartedness and complacency princess i must warn you she added lowering her voice the prince has had a quarrel with mikhail ivanoff he is in a very bad humour very morose i warn you you know ah cher ami replied the princess maria i have asked of you never to speak to me of the humour in which my father happens to be i do not allow myself to make remarks about him and i do not wish others to the princess glanced at her watch and noticing that she was already five minutes behind the time when it was required of her to practise on the harpsichord she hurried from the room with dismay pictured on her face between twelve o'clock and two the prince took his nap and it was the immutable rule of the house that the princess should then practise End of chapter 23